My name is Erin Kenny. I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Carrie Jones, who is an internationally recognized speaker, consultant, and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones with over 20 years of experience in this industry. She truly is the queen of hormones. She's a naturopathic physician. She has her master's in public health, and she was one of the first to become certified through the American Board of Naturopathic Endocrinology. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation today. We cover some really important topics, including the nuances of the Women's Health Initiative study and why you should not be afraid of hormone replacement therapy. We also talk about how you should start caring about menopause in your 30s and practical steps that you can start taking to optimize your hormone balance. If you're enjoying these episodes, please like, subscribe, and share. It really helps keep us going. So I remember when I was probably, so I was just about to go into college and I was going into dietetics and I remember, you know, the dentist is in my mouth. Of course, they always talk to you when they're like knee deep in your mouth. (laughs) And she said, Oh, you want to become a dietitian? You should focus on menopause. She said, there's, we don't have, there's nobody out there for us. Like nobody is helping us through this transition. So I mean, you're the hormone queen. I know I, I told you that when, <laughs> when we first got on here, but I truly mean it. And I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast today because I know our listeners are going to get so much information from you. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, I was super honored when you invited me on. And I agree. Menopause is like the forgotten transition. As I was saying, like we, we focus on puberty and in, there's a lot around that. We focus on the transition of pregnancy, if that's a goal of yours. If you are pregnant, we focus on the transition of postpartum. And then we kind of forget after that. Like we just don't really focus on much else. And a lot of women are left completely floundering. They had no idea that when they hit their late 30s into their 40s, things are going to shift a lot. And so they think the worst. They're thinking, I have changed nothing and everything has changed. I don't understand where this weight is coming from, these mood changes. I don't understand why my brain doesn't work. I don't understand why my vagina doesn't work. I don't understand all these symptoms that I'm having. And because we never really focused on this in our younger school years, women are left to suffer. So I am thrilled to talk about perimenopause and menopause as much as I can. Yeah, well, I would love to hear too, also just kind of how you got into this space. I mean, I know you're, you've done so much work and you've, you're now like very well known for speaking and you've written books and now you're even on a, like a board for, I think the Dutch program. Is that right? I was, I teach for the Dutch test quite a bit, actually. Yeah. I do boot camps for them and I used to be their medical director. So a lot of hormone in my life. (laughs) Yeah. So is there anything in particular that brought you to this place? Like, is it just kind of a personal passion? Well, what happened and I didn't know it at the time, but I, so I grew up in Kentucky, the state of Kentucky in Lexington and my health coach class or my health class was taught by the football coach 
So you can imagine how that went. And when I realized that I wanted to go into medical school, I decided conventional medicine is not the route I wanted to go because I was very into education. I was very into connecting and, and um, outreach. And I realized once I moved out West, I found naturopathic medicine. And my mentor at the time was in her 40s. And at that point, going through perimenopause and the study that kind of ruined hormones for women, which is the Women's Health Initiative, had come out in 2002. So I had started, I started working with the school in 1999. I became a student in 2001. So in 2002, like immediately everyone halted their hormones. And a lot of my mentors and teachers who were female were going through it. And when we're focused on hormones, I thought, gosh, there's so much we don't get taught as women. And over and over and over again, I would have patients come in that said, I didn't know how this worked. I didn't know that's what my body does. I don't know what's actually happening to me. And I kept going in that direction because it just, hormones just make sense to me, even though they're chaotic and feel like hurting cats. But explaining hormones seemed really helpful for women if they just knew what was happening in their body. If we'd just been taught at a younger age, imagine all the shifts and the changes and the self-care and the the adapt- adaptations we could have done to probably alleviate a lot of symptoms, disease, world of hurt things that we have to go through. If we had been taught at a young age, what's a hormone? What are these what's going on in our body? How does our life and stress and diet and exercise impact all of this? Um, but we don't get taught any of that. And so I stayed in the hormone realm because patient after patient after patient said, I don't feel good. I think it's my hormones. I don't know what a hormone is, but can you fix it? And I was like, yes, let's go. And that's what kept me in it for this long. And I love it. I love it, obviously, selfishly, because I'm a woman. (laughs) I want to know what's going on with me and where I'm going. I want to figure this out. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And and when we talk about testing too, like I'd love to hear your experience with testing. I know it's something you do very regularly. Um, So would just love to hear your experience and how it's helped you through that process. When it comes to perimenopause and menopause, there's no test for it. For example, women would come in, they're in their 40s, and they say, I'm having all these symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, I can't sleep, my mood's a mess, I've gained weight, can't think. Test me and tell me if I'm in perimenopause. I said, you are. I mean, you are. It's symptoms and age, essentially, uh, that we use for perimenopause. However, I love to use testing around that. How can we optimize and help you thrive as you go through it? Mm -hmm. At this transition, our blood sugar and insulin kind of goes to hell. At this transition, a lot of women worsen on the thyroid route. They get more hypothyroid if they are, maybe start to develop hypothyroidism if they aren't. We start to notice just our digestion changes because of the change in hormones, unfortunately. So now we don't maybe absorb nutrients like we used to. So maybe now we're B12 deficient when we didn't used to be. Or our periods get heavier because we're missing certain hormones like progesterone And now we're iron deficient because we have such heavy periods. We bleed all the time and there goes our iron. And so by running these, and there are more, the cortisol, there there are a lot of tests we can run sort of supportively to see what's going on. Mm. Menopause, the true definition of menopause is once you've gone 12 consecutive months with no period and you are at an appropriate age, then on the 13th month, we're like, congratulations, throw a party, you're menopausal. Yay. And what I say by age appropriate is that obviously there are women who maybe are in their teens or 20s who have amenorrhea. They've gone long periods with no, or with no period, and that's not menopause. It, we, we think menopause, of course, um, later in life. Obviously, you can go through early menopause, and there's something different called hypothalamic amenorrhea. But true, if somebody's listening to this and they're 54 
and they've gone 10 months with no period, like hang on there for two more months and then you were considered menopausal. So there's no, again, there's no test for that. It's, it's, do you have, how long has it been since you've had a period? But I still use testing to support everything they're going through. And there are different types of testing. There's blood testing, there's saliva testing, there's urine testing, Mm -hmm. there's stool testing, there's genetic testing. There's a lot of options. And so it's really nice is to work with a practitioner who can really personalize it for you. You may find you don't need hormone testing right away, but like your gut's a mess, your GI tract. And so maybe pooping in a cup for science is the route for you. Maybe nutrient testing is the route for you based on your symptoms, your diet, et cetera. Maybe hormone testing is the right thing for you. It's been a minute since you've had a thyroid test. You know, you haven't had your glucose and insulin checked ever. You, you know, you haven't, you don't even know what, what your progesterone is doing or your estrogen and you would like to see, then absolutely let's, let's go that route with testing. And so there's no necessarily one size fits all. And it depends on your goals, it depends on your budget, you know, insurance coverage or not. Some of these tests are not covered by insurance, um, but a lot are, a lot of the blood tests are. And so that's, but I just want women to know there's options. And if you mm-hmm. go to your practitioner and you get told, no, no, we don't believe in testing or we don't do testing, or that's not how we do it here. Um, you can get testing hundred percent. And you can look at these other markers that surround perimenopause and menopause to help you thrive as you go through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that's really great to hear. I mean, you know, I, I've heard that everyone, I mean, just a lot of the women in my life, you know, some people will say, oh, like, I had no symptoms, you know, I, I didn't even know I was in menopause, it's just like, all of a sudden, I lost my period. And, you know, I felt fine, and all things considered. And then you hear people that are like, oh, my gosh, it was the worst time of my life. I was, I couldn't sleep, I was having hot flashes, all a lot of the symptoms that you've mentioned already. Um, why do you think it is, or why is it that some individuals have a harder time through this transition? Do you think that lifestyle and diet play a huge role in that? Like, I'm not, I'm not yes. necessarily asking for a percentage, <laughs> but like, I mean, empower, empower people here to like, okay, how much is actually in our control, depending on how severe these symptoms are? Everyone is going to go through menopause. We don't have a choice with that. That's, that's going to happen. With those who say I have no symptoms and I my period ended and I didn't even realize it and all of a sudden I was menopausal, um, there probably are a few that truly don't have any symptoms. They're clearly God's favorite and that's not who I'm talking to. <laughs> who I am talking to though are people who feel when we think of menopause, they go, well, I didn't have hot flashes, therefore I didn't go, th- I didn't have any menopausal symptoms. My menopause was easy. What we forget is that the menopause symptom list is actually really long and they may have been struggling with other things. So they may be like, oh, I didn't have hot flashes like my sister. However, their glucose is going up. Their waistline is increasing, right? Their energy is going down. Their joint pain is getting worse. They're noticing dryness, dry skin, their, you know, dry hair, their hair texture is changing, hair loss, uh, dry eyes, dry mouth, dry vagina, dry joints. So again, that achy creakiness. So while they may think I didn't have hot flashes and night sweats, but they're coming to see you because their autoimmune symptoms are worse. Plus everything I said, not realizing the decline in your hormones, particularly your estradiol, your one of your estrogens plays a big role in pretty much every single system in your body. So who seems to do better in menopause? I do believe just observation, anecdotal, those who 
have really done the work in their, I mean, as long as possible, but let's say their thirties leading into their forties regarding their getting themselves in tip top shape, you know, taking it really seriously, their, their, what they eat and how they move and stress management. And I'm not saying perfection. I'm just saying balance, Mm -hmm. um, working on reducing the estrogenic toxic chemicals in their environment, their sleep, their relationships, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They do seem to fare better when it comes to the symptoms. If you've had a really rough 30s, and I see this a lot, especially in chronic disease, autoimmune, you know, chronic illness, chronic infections, and they're also sort of struggling with everything else, struggling with the sleep department, struggling in the gut department, I've already said the immune department, they're sort of struggling all around in life, they're not going to have an easy menopause. I read an article recently that called it an uncoupling in the brain. So Mm. when you go through puberty, everything aligns in your brain. It turns on because the the body's like, cool, ready for reproduction. Let's do this. We're going to couple together in the brain and turn on so that the brain to the ovary systems work. And when we go through perimenopause and the menopause, those systems uncouple. The estrogen, estradiol declines and we get this uncoupling in a lot of the systems And as a result, we feel it. Well, if you're already feeling uncoupled, walking into perimenopause, I tend to see those women fare the worst. Mm -hmm. So when somebody says to me, when should I start to prepare for perimenopause? I'm like, in your 30s. And -hmm. if you're not in your 30s, then today. (laughs) Start today. (laughs) Because it, I don't want it to be a rough time. I don't want you to feel alone and isolated. I don't want you to feel like everything's falling apart and all the walls are crumbling, which can happen for a lot of women because there's not a lot of great support out there and hasn't been historically. That tide is changing, thank goodness, because there are a lot of things you can do. But up until very recently, unfortunately, women were left to struggle and that's not fair. Mm-hmm. I, just a, just like where my brain goes when I hear this stuff of like all the things that we're at higher risk of as our hormones are declining, it's like from a physiological and like adaptive standpoint, like my question is like, why? Why do our bodies just decide? Is it like, because I mean, we know the importance of estrogen in the body, like you even mentioned, it's important for immune function, digestion, cardiovascular health. Like, I'm just, I'm just so curious, like why our bodies were designed this way. And I'm sure a lot of women probably feel that way. They're like, why is this happening to me? I didn't necessarily do anything to like deserve this. I'm sure there's a lot of mental health challenges that come along with that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mental health and just everything else. I mean, even now there's some amazing female brain researchers like Dr. Lisa Mascani. She wrote the XX brain and she's now coming out with menopause brain because of the impact, the loss of estradiol in our brain and our risk for, you know, all things memory, mood, dementia, Alzheimer's, like they're taking it a lot more seriously now, thank goodness, because historically, anything related to anti-aging or biohacking or brain has been done on the male brain. You don't have to include periods in that. A lot of women historically have been left out of research for a variety of reasons, one of which is how do we account for their period? Because we know, depending where they are, their follicular phase, ovulation, luteal phase, their actual period, our hormones are different. Well, that's a big variation in a study. So they focus on men who don't have periods. And then they're like, great, it's pretty consistent across the board. And we're just going to extrapolate it. But as you're, you've had the guest on Stacey's Dr. Stacey Sims, and as she says, women are not small men, 
And it's the same in because of that estradiol. Now, as to why we were designed this way, I would honestly like to have a conversation with whoever de- designed us. I, <laughs> I have some I have some thoughts and feelings, and I have a whole list from you know millions and millions of women who have some similar thoughts and questions as to why we were designed this way. Um, you know, there there are a lot of theories out there as to the the point of menopause obviously one being like the, the, the well sort of like in the grandma idea of make us less not able to reproduce anymore so younger the younger healthier generation so to speak can mm-hmm. continue to uh procreate if that's something that they want to do also with living longer you know if you died uh way back playback in your 50s it's like, you know, you probably went through menopause and unfortunately that was the end, but now we're living into our seventies, eighties, nineties, hundreds and beyond. And Mm -hmm. so most menopausal women barring something major will live in menopause for a third to a half of their life. And to remember that we need to really take care of ourselves in a different way. We need that estradiol support in menopausal levels to, again, I just keep using the word thrive because it it does touch every single system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned the dietary aspect of it. And and one thing that I've seen become very trendy, if you don't mind touching on it is just the Mm -hmm. intermittent fasting aspect. And, and I, and I know like when we talk about the, like women are not small men type of conversation and like a lot of the research that's been done in fasting and, and been done in men and, you know, just curious kind of what your thoughts are on intermittent fasting for various stages of menopause. I think intermittent, once you are fully menopausal, I think intermittent fasting works a lot better. Mm-hmm. I follow Stacey Sims's work. I also have been following uh, Dr. Mindy Pels, who um, wrote Fast Like a Girl, and she's thousands of women who've gone through at various ages. And uh, she and I have talked at length, it's in her book, around Uh, fast intermittent fasting and menopause because you don't have a menstrual cycle then it seems to work a whole lot better you get better outcomes and anecdotally my menopausal patients or clients or the people I consult on when they're menopausal and they're introducing fasting their um, metabolic outcomes are way better Mm. where I see the struggle is when they're perimenopausal and it's kind of chaos when it comes to their hormones and their menstrual cycle which is stressful to the body coupled with life is stressful. And then they're trying to skip breakfast, push it with coffee or whatever, you know, do, do intermittent fasting that maybe is hurting them more than it's helping them. Now, everybody's an individual. If somebody's listening to this going, well, I'm 46, I still get my cycle and intermittent fasting is working for me. Fantastic. But if it's not working for you, then note that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just the transition part you're in. Maybe wait until you are further into menopause. You've had more, um, either your full 12 months of skip periods. I I have had some people I've consulted with where, so when you get close to menopause, what will happen for a lot of women is their cycles get farther and farther apart. So they may say, my gosh, I've been six months, no period. Can I try intermittent fasting now? I'm like, yeah, go for it. If Assuming everything else is pretty good and healthy and take care of yourself and stress management. Yeah, I don't see why not. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I tend to see. And unfortunately, a lot of women tend to skip breakfast in intermittent fasting because in the male biohacker world, that's what, you know, skipping breakfast, what you do, you start eating like at 11 or at noon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really can trip up 
cycling women's hormones, um, it's depending on the strength of your system, it could be viewed as a threat. You're not eating, you know, the body has to make accommodations. It's telling you to eat. You're not, and you're pushing it to 11 or noon or one or whatever you do it. And that feedback to the brain is this isn't good. She's not eating and it's going to affect the downstream hormones because you're getting that feedback back. You don't have that feedback in menopause because you're not cycling. You're not looking to reproduce. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I've seen so many cycling women in my practice and it's like, the only thing we changed was that they eat within the first hour of waking up and it's like yeah. their periods come back almost instantly. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that is, that is a big stress for that type of hormonal system for some people. But as you mentioned, like some people are so much more sensitive than, than others. And I think that's so oh important gosh. to remember it. And, you know, you couple exercise too, in the morning and someone's waking up, they're doing like a super intense workout and they're not eating. And it's like, okay, how, how are you feeling? Right. A lot of people are like, no, that's so great. Some people feel really good. Like just depends yeah. on where you are, but, um, you mentioned metabolic health. So are there other things like, let's say someone doesn't want to do fasting. Are there other metabolic things that they can do? Like obviously strength training, right? That's yes. huge. That was the first thing I was going to say. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Build that muscle. Yes. As you know, as Dr. Gabrielle Lyon says, we're under muscled and we only get, unfortunately more under muscled the older we get. And we, don't have the ability to, you know, get those gains in perimenopause and menopause unless we work really hard at it. That and the loss of progesterone and estradiol changes our metabolic health. We become more insulin resistant by default, no choice of our own. Unfortunately, it's physiology of losing estradiol and progesterone. And so having to work even harder um, to make sure your insulin and your glucose are doing well, you're not swinging from hypoglycemia to hyperglycemia, you know, you're really paying attention to that. And I hear that a lot from women who say, man, gosh, in my teens and 20s, I could eat anything I wanted. And in my 30s, maybe I dialed in a little bit, but man, I hit my 40s and it just went, you know, to hell in a handbasket. What changed? Your hormones changed. That's what changed. And you became less sensitive at the cellular level and up goes your glucose and up goes your your, uh, insulin. So weightlifting, Absolutely. The other is, you know, as, as a dietitian, it's definitely uh, honing in on what you're eating. You know, what is at the end of your fork? What are you leaning towards? What are your cravings? What are your macronutrients and micronutrients for that matter? Um, mm-hmm. Because as I said, if you're that person who's running light very quickly, you're eating in between meals or you're eating, in be- you know, between kids and running here and dropping off here, you're constantly eating on the go. Your stress is high. Well, when you're young, you can get away with that. I'm not saying it's healthy, but you can get away with that. We all know that. But as we move into our 40s and 50s, we cannot get away with it like we used to. And it shows up in our metabolic health. And so just being cognizant of like, damn it, I like, you know, chew your food and, you know, like, like sit down and, and eat. And, you know, are you eating on the fly? Are you eating your children's leftovers? Are you, you know, are you just sort of snacking through the whole day? Like, what are you, what are you choosing when you, when you do your day for your nutrients, I think mm-hmm. makes a huge difference. That and the liquid calories, are you living off of smoothies? Are you living off of fancy coffee drinks? Are you living off of alcohol? You know, that liquid calorie thing. Do you live off kombucha? Do you, and, and accounting for that because it's, it's quick, it's easy. You're out running around, you're running errands, you're shuttling kids, you're going to meetings and you're like, Oh, I'm so hungry. I'm just going to grab this green juice. I'm just going to grab this smoothie. I'm just going to grab this, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, not realizing maybe it's probably not the healthiest thing for you. Um, here and there. Sure. 
But if that's your normal, if you're listening to this, like, dang it, yep, I totally get a full-on blended coffee drink with whip when I'm hungry because it tides me over, gives me energy, and then you completely crash a couple hours later, not helping your metabolism, your cellular metabolism, especially once you hit your 40s and 50s. And so mm-hmm. those are like two really big things. Start putting some skeletal muscle on you, that lean muscle mass, and really evaluate how you eat, but also what you eat and drink and drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a great segue into a topic <laughs> that comes up very often. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I have a, a, a few clients in mind where this conversation comes up a lot. And the number one question, you know, I'm always educating on how alcohol impacts hormones and how we deal with estrogen and how it impacts the liver. And maybe you could even go into that a little bit more just Mm because the listeners might have no idea how like that impacts our hormone production and, um, you know, sleep and everything. But my clients are always like, okay, Erin, but I know alcohol (laughs) is bad, but like A, how bad? B, what's the minimum dose I can get away with and still like, you know, so that's, that's the question. So I'm just going to transfer it to you because I'm curious what your response would be. I hear it all <laughs> the time, all the time. And I get it. The bad things in life are the most fun. And I myself love a good glass of wine or a really dry champagne. But as I've gotten older, absolutely don't drink hardly at all because it just wrecks it wrecks your REM sleep it wrecks your deep sleep it changes your your blood sugar it negatively impacts your hormones and it negatively impacts your brain function and so your ability to break down or metabolize alcohol also seems to slow down as you go into perimenopause when i was in my 30s all my patients in their 40s would look at me and go you just wait once you hit your 40 or on your 45th birthday You'll be out celebrating and you're going to feel like trash the next day and it will never get better. And I'm like, dang it, if they weren't right, our enzymes in our liver aren't what they used to be when we we're younger. And they, they, and they got the, the buckets fuller. We're just exposed to more stuff and chemicals and, you know, herbicides and all the things. And so the liver is responsible for a lot. So what I tell women, like if there's no healthy dose of, of alcohol is my understanding. There's no, is as far as women's health and hormones go. And I see it a lot when women say, they tell me all their hormonal symptoms, PMS, breast tenderness, you know, weight gain, feeling puffy, tired, mental brain fog. And then we add the alcohol on top of it. I'm like, look, you've got hormone issues. Alcohol is not helping. So there's no healthy dose here because you're in my office feeling like crap. So let's work on the alcohol piece. Now, having said that, some women will say, well, I want the occasional. Can I have a glass of wine at a celebration? Can I do New Year's champagne? You know, in my family, Christmas dinner is really big and we have, we have wine, like if I have it occasionally. And I'm like, I'm about balance, not perfection. You, you know how you're going to feel. You're going to sleep like crap, you know, but if, that's, if it's important with the family or a wedding or an event or what have you, go for it. Just know that alcohol, when it gets broken down through the liver, it tends to get priority and hormones like estrogen get pushed to the back. So now you have more estrogens potentially in circulation contributing to the symptoms I just told you about, PMS, heavier periods, fibroids, breast tenderness, et cetera, because you you still can get your cycle, of course, and perimenopause. That's what makes it perimenopause. So if you're struggling with those things, careful on the alcohol. And I will say when you, you, when you um, break down alcohol, it uses a lot of liver resources. So 
lot of your minerals, you know, your B vitamins, zinc, magnesium, electrolytes, et cetera, are needed to make that happen. So if you do have the occasional at, at a holiday or a wedding or something, make sure that you are at least replenishing yourself on the nutrients that you're probably using up real quick on, on that glass of wine or on that glass of champagne. I do get a lot of pushback on, hey, Carrie, um, I use organic biodynamic wine. There's no sugar in it. I'm like, that's great. You know, they're like, oh, my continuous glucose monitor does not freak out when I have this organic biodynamic no sugar wine. Or they'll say, um, I only do organic vodka, vodka soda with, with lime, and my continuous glucose monitor, totally fine. Doesn't affect my ketones, none of the things. I'm like, that's great. Good for you. However, your liver is pissed. <laughs> so, and you just gave me this laundry list of symptoms that make you, that you feel terrible. So how many vodka sodas are we having here? How many biodynamic, organic, low sugar wines are we talking about? Because you don't feel good. So if that is a major part of your life, it's time to reconsider why and it's likely contributing. And here's a really interesting story. A girlfriend of mine um, who's a doctor, she was like, I'm having breast pain all the time. She's in her late forties, breast pain all the time, Carrie, all the time, all the time. And she lives in an area that's a wine region. So she had a membership to a winery, you know, she and her husband, not a lot, uh, maybe a couple times a month, we're having some wine. And I was like, Hey, just cut out the wine, just cut out the wine and let's see what happens. No, 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 no. I'm only, it's only a couple times a month, Carrie. It's not a big deal. Then she decided to cut out. She's already right, fine. I'll go for a month and no, have no wine. She had no breast tenderness. None. Just wow. that little bit that she was drinking, a glass or two, you know, maybe a glass a couple times a month was enough to set off her breast tenderness. And when she stopped the wine, the breast tenderness went away. And I tell the story because women come to me and go, I don't drink that much, Carrie. I only drink like one or two on Friday and Saturday. And I'm like, well, but it seems to really carry over. Yeah, no, very powerful. And I think I'm glad you brought up the point about the sugar, because I feel like a lot of people are, they see alcohol as bad or wine specifically bad because they're like, oh, it's it's sugar or it turns to sugar. It's like, okay, sugar aside, yes, sugar we should care about, but like it's alcohol, like it is quite literally a toxin that you're mm -hmm. putting into your body. So it's just, again, not to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad, but just understanding and empowering people that if if that's something that that once a month glass of wine doesn't really mean that much to you. If you could like do a mocktail or get something that looks like you're participating, if that's what is important, give it a try and just see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a really great approach to have. Yeah. And I know it's hard, you know, I know there's a, there's like a whole grieving process. There's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole like, Oh my gosh, my wine or feeling social or feeling connected. Cause unfortunately as we become menopausal and we lose that estradiol, that estrogen, it actually truly negatively impacts our neurotransmitters. Our serotonin can go down, our GABA can go down, our oxytocin goes down, our dopamine changes for the worse, and we feel less connected, right? We're maybe more depressed, more anxious, more irritable, less connected, less brave. We don't really want to, you know, go out and do the things per se than we used to. We may find this in this transition. And so for some women, they're like, but I actually really appreciate the glass of wine because it helps me feel connected or it helps relax me or it helps me, you know, be part of the group again when I'm not feeling so extroverted today. And I agree with you. I'm like, okay, then what can we do as an alternative to help that? Like, let's, let's get your oomph back. Let's get your mojo back. Let's focus on the brain, the neurotransmitters, the estrogen, as opposed to relying on 
the social glass of wine or the social mm-hmm. cocktail, you know, that you turn to, to encourage that part of you now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even you just mentioned like just community and like being around like-minded people or I love Pilates and I just started last year. It's something that I was like never really into, but the class that I was in, it was all women, either perimenopause or postmenopause. And they would all just come and like socialize and they talk about like what they were going through physically. I would just kind of sit there and be like a fly on the wall. But, <laughs> like there, There's other things it sounds like that you could do to kind of really help with that, that loss or feeling or any sort of those mental health challenges. So that's a good, good thing to keep in mind. And this is definitely a lot of people are very busy. I mean, I know if you're if you're listening and you're an introvert, this can this can be hard. And so this is what can we do to help you foster a sense of community, feel connected, whether that's in your partnerships, your work, your family, your friends, um, the events and things that you do go to, because as we get older and we're more involved in our family or business or kid or what have you then it becomes hard to find time. You know, even with our best friends, sometimes it's like, well, we need to schedule that because my I'm too busy to, to hang out or to see you or to do some sort of girl's trip, et cetera. And so by recognizing that it only gets harder sometimes as we get older, we will have to put a little more effort in. Again, I'm not saying it's fair or fun, but I am saying it is true. And if we recognize it now, there's nothing wrong with you. It's this transition so let's we have to put a little more effort in or a lot more effort depending on the case and foster that community keep those connections. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. You mentioned estrogen. So estrogen so hormone replacement therapy, right? Big topic transition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I think when people think of hormone replacement therapy, they just think of like estrogen progesterone or maybe they just think of estrogen and you mentioned the women's health initiative study which i would love to just like just sum up for people of like maybe why there doesn't need to be such a fear of that since there's been more research that's come out that maybe hasn't gained as much attention as that in particular study i listened to like a whole recap from you i actually sent it to one of my clients because she was going to be standing sitting on a board of women at her company mm. love that episode that you did I don't, I don't remember who it was with but it was super helpful but i listened to her like dr peter atia he walked through like all the nitty-gritty mm. details of that study and that was really helpful for me as a practitioner to try to like educate my clients on it but maybe we can start with like maybe what the nuance is not like every detail nuance but like maybe why that study shouldn't be the reason why people are so afraid of hormone replacement therapy. And then we can talk about like how hormone replacement therapy isn't just estrogen. There's other like, Oh my gosh. Yes. Hormones. Yes. And I, and I think um, if you're taking thyroid medication, you know, that's hormone replacement therapy. If you are type one diabetic or you're at the point in diabetes where you need insulin, that's hormone replacement therapy. You know, there's a, there's absolutely there's testosterone, there's DHEA. I mean, there are a lot of hormones I think we forget about that fall under that big umbrella, but we will focus for the moment on estrogen. So the Women's Health Initiative kicked off in 2002, and the point was, well, there was a lot of reasons for doing the Women's Health Initiative, but what they came out with, the news said, was that when you take combination hormone replacement therapy, which was a synthetic progestin and ethanol estradiol, when you take that combination, you have an increased risk for breast cancer. So that made the news. Immediately, perimenopausal and menopausal women all over the world stopped their hormones largely and panicked, rightfully so, given that information. 
So unfortunately, when you read the history and how it was designed and who they recruited and how they took the history of those women, who they kept out of the study, um, their, you know, their health going into the study, how they reported on the study, there were a lot of just issues that have been reevaluated since that time. I mean, I mean, that's 20 plus years ago that this came out and turns out <laughs> a lot of the information was downright false, very misleading or downright false, but that part didn't make the news. In fact, in the study that they published in 2002, there were two parts to the study. There were the women who took the combination HRT, ethanol estradiol, and the progestin. And then there was an arm of the study that had just women taking estrogen, estrogen by itself, ethanol estradiol by itself. Those women had had a hysterectomy, so they didn't need them to be on any kind of progesterone or progestin. But even in that original study, those women had less breast cancer, less breast cancer. And to this day, to this day, follow-up studies on those women or recreating that study have found that that, that est ethanol estradiol does not increase the risk of breast, of breast cancer. Then fast forward, um, we have even found that they would report in the study about how, you know, it, it, the brain health or, or heart risk or, or it, did, it did reduce the risk of like hip fractures. So like there were some like tiny positives that came out of it, but they would then go back and reevaluate and go, oh, oops, 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 oops. Like that was reported wrong. It's not, it's not actually going to increase your risk for colon cancer. It's not actually going to increase your risk for dementia. In fact, some of the women in the study already had dementia and then they put them on hormones and realized like, oh crap, you have dementia. It must've been the hormones. And it's like, no, they, they weren't screened properly. They kept out women. Um, when you read the history of it, that had really severe vasomotor symptoms. So hot flashes and night sweats. And then at the time in the study, they said, well, it's, it's not really good for vasomotor motor symptoms, but they specifically kept those women out. They didn't want them in the recruitment part. And now guidelines are very clear by major menopausal societies that say hormone replacement therapy, especially estradiol, is a great choice if you have vasomotor symptoms, estradiol, uh, or um, hot flashes and night sweats. And so it's a real disservice that we got with that study um, that they reported uh, so so incorrectly, so incorrectly all around. And so with you mentioned Peter Atia. So uh, Peter interviewed, I mean, he's done several on um, the, uh, the follow-up of the uh, WHI trial, but there is also the study, the book, Estrogen Matters. And the Estrogen Matters book, for women who are really concerned about estrogen, um, it's a really good book to read and mm -hmm. understand estrogen and understand um, what it does in the body and also the issues that uh, came out of that study. Now, going back to the combination, the combination of HRT was reported to the world that if you were on it, you're going to have an increased risk of breast cancer. But unfortunately, when they go back and do the numbers, they found that it was not statistically significant, but that part wasn't reported either. So I mentioned the estrogen-only arm had less breast cancer, and then if you were on the combination HRT, it turns out it wasn't actually statistically significant. And so, um, it's like anybody that knows the slightest bit about research knows that that's a really important point. It's scary. It's scary. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a big controversial discussion between, of course, Carrie, what do I do if I have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer? 
oncologists are very adamant you need to take estrogen blocking medications when you're when you're working with ER positive breast cancer you shouldn't be on any type of estrogen period and even that is starting to shift in fact this year or last year guidelines updated that even if you have an estrogen receptor breast cancer you can do vaginal estrogen which is a huge move because a lot of women suffer from vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse. And so be able to even just do vaginal estrogen is fantastic. I recently interviewed Dr. Jen Simmons. She's a breast cancer surgeon, a many year breast cancer surgeon turned functional practitioner because she was just getting really tired of honestly, all the BS that was coming out. And as a surgeon, she's like, I really thought I was doing the best that I knew. And at the time and realizing like, hold on, estrogen, I don't think is as bad as we think it is. And if you have an estrogen receptor positive cell that's cancerous, it's estrogen's not the, 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 the single-handed reason. Otherwise, we probably would have developed estrogenic breast cancers through our whole lifetime as opposed to, you know, maybe later in life and in in later decades. And so Dr. Simmons was like, we have to take into so much more into account, even things like those endocrine disrupting chemicals. A study came out just a couple months ago and they talked, they did, they took women, God bless them, and they did breast biopsies in the beginning to check their tissue. They had them stop parabens, phthalates, like those kind of estrogen disrupting chemicals for 28 days, like a month, one month. And their post breast biopsies in these women showed a complete reversal in cancer associated phenotypes. Wow. That why is that not on the cover of Time? Why is that not all over Yahoo and People Magazine or whatever? Why aren't we talking about that? But instead, unfortunately, estrogen gets all the risk. And so women, rightfully so, are very confused in the comments. They're very confused on social media. They're like, I thought estrogen was bad. I was told not to take it. My doctor refuses. I, I've seen the craziest comments um, about, oh, I have hypothyroid. I shouldn't do estrogen. That's BS. Um, I... You know, I, I just, I was, what was the other one that I saw today? And I was like, what in the heck? I mean, the, the unfortunate rhetoric that comes out of misunderstanding of estrogen is hurting women. When I'm telling you estrogen, estradiol is literally touches every single system in our body. And when it drops to menopausal levels, sometimes it drops so low, it's below menopausal levels and women are left to suffer. And I hate that. So Mm -hmm. So here I am talking about this to say, and again, not everyone's a great candidate for estrogen, but there are different types of estrogen. There are other kinds of hormones. I mean, it's, it's a whole conversation beyond no estrogen's bad and shut it down. Like, Oh no, 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 no. It's much broader than that. Yeah. Well, and so the, so the vaginal, there's a patch, there's a cream. Is there like a patch versus a cream? Is there much of a difference there versus like an oral so the, I'll be honest. So my, so there's injections, <laughs> there's d- dissolvable lozenge. There's a whole bunch of options. Now, what is considered FDA approved that's at the pharmacy uh, are the patches and the gels. Um, and so, and then you can have it compounded uh, at a compounding pharmacy. So let's say you need a gel that's a particular dose. They don't make it at Walgreens or CVS or wherever you, Costco, wherever you get it filled. So then you can have it compounded. Or let's say you want, something that's maybe dissolvable, not like a capsule, but like, like an Altoid, some type that you let dissolve, or there's a vaginal gel that you want to use. But again, like the dose is different than what's out there. So you can have a compounded. So there actually are a lot of options out there. 
I tend to lean towards something like a patch as an example, because it gives you a more steady state. Um, it does go up in incremental levels. You will usually see it as like a 0.025 is the lowest. And then depending which patch you can get, it's 0 0.037, 0 0.05. Like, you know, it kind of like goes up, up the ring. And so, but some people like the gels better. You know, they, they find it easier. They find that they like the application daily as opposed to the patch. Some people are allergic to the patch adhesive. They have very sensitive skin. Can't do a patch. I'm like, cool, let's switch to the gel. Mm -hmm. So th this is why I like the personalization of hormones because, and I don't ever want somebody listening going, estrogen didn't work for me. Hormones didn't work for me. Well, it's possible you just got the wrong form, the wrong dose, and it, we can change it. That's what I yeah. love. So I have a lot of clients who all like, I don't, I mean, this is not my expertise. So I'll say, you know, try to find, like, try to ask your doctor about like hormone mm -hmm. replacement therapy. It seems like it'd be a great option for you. And, you know, their doctor's not really educated on it, or they don't really like, they're just kind of used to some standards. So, I mean, obviously you are a great resource, but like, are there a lot of doctors out there who are well-educated on this of how to, how to personalize it for people? So I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I hope so. They <laughs> seem to be hidden. I'm seeing a lot, lot more on social media. Thank goodness. I'm seeing a lot more outspoken OBGYNs who've gone and gotten a ton of training they're in menopause themselves, and they're amazing, amazing at what they say. Uh, I see them on TikTok. I see naturopathic doctors. I see nurse practitioners, PAs, coaches that are working in you know medical groups that have gotten a lot of training and are really trying to help educate. And what I tell people listening, women listening, is if you've gone to your practitioner, let's say you like your OBGYN, no hate on them at all, but let's say you go to your OBGYN. I'll give you my example. At the time, this was, let's see here, this is probably, this is 2019, 2018, I went to go to PAP. At the time, my OBGYN was 46. She was older than me at the time. And she was in her, well, 46. I'm 46 now, but back then I wasn't. <laughs> and so she said, we were talking about hormones. And she said, oh my gosh, you know, I'm an OBGYN, but, and I'm 46, but I'm on the birth control pill. And I was like, why? You're 46. Like there's so many hormonal options out there. And she's like, well, I don't want to get pregnant. I said, well, no, I get that. But also the birth control pill was kind of designed for women who were a lot younger not women 46, like, are, like, are you sure with all the side effects? And she said, well, I'm going to do this now. And quite honestly, I don't really know a lot about hormones. You know, I, I, I do paps, I deliver babies. Like this is kind of what I do. And I was like, you know what? Thank God. Fair. She was super cool. Thank, unfortunately she moved. And I said, thank you for telling me this is great. So I would kept her, I would have kept her as an OBGYN and I would have gone and found somebody who understands hormones. So if you have somebody you love, you love your OBGYN, you love your primary care, you love whatever, whoever, your internist, but they say to you, oh, you know what, I don't really do hormones. Totally cool. Keep them, keep them in your healthcare team and maybe find somebody who does. Ask them if they know somebody who does. Maybe if you're in a group care setting, somebody else has a better focus on hormones and you can see them as well. And I think, especially in our American insurance model, we get worried of, oh, I can't cheat on my primary care because I might get kicked out or that's who I'm assigned to, or that's who I've been seeing. And it's not the case at all. You can keep them and you are yeah. welcome to find somebody else who has a hormone expertise. And that's what you're looking for. And what I am finding now is a lot of OBGYNs who've gotten older. Um, for example, I used to work with an OB, uh, OBGYN turned turned gynecologist. So she gave up the OB part. Then she became an surgeon. So she became a gyne surgeon. And as she got older, as we got older, she was like, I don't do that baby crap anymore. <laughs> I'm paying for the hormones now. Like 
all my patient base, like I had, I helped them deliver their babies and now like we're all aging together. And so I'm just meeting my patients where they are. So she went and got all this training in hormones because she said, I don't want to deliver babies. And you know, all my babies are now in their twenties and the moms are in their forties, fifties, and sixties. And I need to help them. And I was like, that's brilliant. So find that, find that type of practitioner. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. They should have like a database online for these types of practitioners. I know they have that for like certain things. Um, And you can find, for example, in functional medicine, you know, you can use IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine, uh, IFM.org. They have a find a practitioner. You'll have to dig through. You can go through, for example, I'm a naturopathic doctor. You can go through naturopathic.org, find a practitioner click that you want women's health. I mean, you can definitely, there is a, the menopause society. They may, they're a little slow in their guidelines to, to me. I feel, um, the <laughs> no North one's going to be able to keep society. up with you. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, when you're a whole society, any society, you know, it's like moving a cruise ship when you need to yeah. update guidelines, but if your insurance only wants you to see, you know, they, they do have a database too. Mm-hmm. They do put out guidelines around hormones. They may be depending where you live, it might be a great option for you. Mm-hmm. So I, and that's fine. That's okay. And let's say like, let's say that a hormone you're on hormone replacement therapy, you feel like it's working really well. And then all of a sudden, like, it's not like maybe yeah. you start bleeding or like your sleep gets disrupted. Why, why would that happen? And <laughs> should you be monitoring? Would you be doing a Dutch test during this time to make sure that things are okay? Like how would, how do you address that? So let's start with the bleeding because that's a key one. So if you are menopausal, you are, you've gone 12 plus months, no period, you're menopausal, but you're on hormones and you start bleeding, you have to tell your doctor because we don't want something bad to happen in the uterus. Oftentimes it could be a fibroid or polyp. Sometimes it's just a thickening, which is called hyperplasia. Worst, worst, worst case scenario is uterine cancer. Um, so If you start bleeding, definitely call your doctor. You might have to get an ultrasound or even a biopsy and see what's going on. However, other things, not sleeping as well, um, or your hot flashes are coming back, or your mood is changing, or you just, your joint pain is worse again. It's totally possible. One, what's going on in your life? The very first question I always asked my menopausal women when they came in and said, Carrie, it's not working anymore. How's your stress? What's been going on in the last 30 to 60 days? 90% of the time they'd go, oh, it's terrible. Let me tell you what's going on. Cortisol, epinephrine, which is adrenaline, norepinephrine, which is noradrenaline, plays a huge negative role for our female hormones. It's very important for protection and survival, but it is absolutely going to impact our cells, our receptors, our liver, the brain, everything. So like evaluate, turn around and look back 30 to 60 days, what has been going on that could be impacting this? Do I actually need to change the dose or do we have to work on lifestyle stuff? Have you been traveling and changing time zones? You know, have you you something at work, something with the family? Have you gotten off of your routine completely? Like, let's talk that through. Now, it's also possible you started off on a very low dose. Let's say we started you on a patch that was the 0.25, which is the lowest dose as an example. And you were like, you, that's like sprinkling some estradiol in your body. You got sprinkled. And because you got sprinkled, you went from zero to sprinkle. The body was like, woohoo, but then sprinkle's not enough. So you're feeling kind of symptomatic. So it's also possible you do truly need to go on um, a higher dose of it's in that example. So it, if you feel like, oh, and then the third option 
and I see this a lot, is maybe you were on too much of a dose. So another option out there is to get the pellet. There, a pellet is a literally like a little tiny piece of rice. They insert it in your hip area and it has the hormone in it, but it has a, a bolus of hormone. And because it's a big bolus of hormone that's meant to last about three months, if you are not used to that, then instead of a sprinkle of hormone, you get a deluge of flooding of hormone and the receptors on your cells go, eh, that's too much. And they, they like, like door handles, but they like pull their door handle in. They're like, no, don't touch me. <laughs> you know, don't come in the door. <laughs> and so now people go, my blood work shows really high levels, but I don't feel it. I'm like, oh, I bet it's too much of a dose. So like Goldilocks, we need to be just right mm. when it comes to hormones. Okay. That's so helpful. I I'm thinking of one particular client who needed to hear that. So that's awesome. Cause again, not my expertise, like this yeah. is helpful. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So much great information. I mean, this is a, this is a great place to kind of wrap up here. I feel like people have probably learned so much and there's one last question that is very important and it is, what is your favorite childhood memory with food? Oh, with food. I thought you were going to ask in general. <laughs> you can say in general too. In we gen can, yeah. Um, my favorite childhood memory with food. Let me think about this. Honestly, it's probably my mom's cooking. My mom is an amazing cook. And uh, my I grew up in Kentucky. I was, I was born in Michigan. We moved a lot. But I grew up majority in Kentucky. They now live in Georgia. They kept moving south. I went west. But anyway, my mom is this really great cook. And now that I'm out in the west and she's in Georgia, when I come home to visit her, I'm always like, can you make, even as a full-grown adult, a full-grown perimenopausal adult, I'm like, can you make... <laughs> can you make, <laughs> will you make me? Cause she's, oh. it's that it, she's again, such a good cook and, um, very comforting, delicious, healthy food. And so I miss my mom's cooking. So that's mm. probably my favorite memory of growing up is always getting predominantly always getting really great nutritious meals and mm -hmm. they were really good. That's awesome. Well, your mom sounds amazing. And she's obviously transferred a lot of that to you. And yeah. <laughs> um, that's so great. What great memories. So where can people find you? Are you taking like individual clients? I am not taking individual clients. I do work with a group called nutrition dynamic mm -hmm. uh, com, And so we are potentially in 2024, there may be some sort of um, way. So be on the lookout for that. But my website is uh, Dr. Carrie Jones, D-R-C-A-R-R-I-E jones.com. You can find me on Instagram is where I hang out the most at dr.carriejones. I have dipped my toe in a TikTok. Still struggling with that one, but I'm on TikTok as well, Dr. Carrie Jones. And, uh, but the website's probably where you can find the most information. That's awesome. Yeah. And she's got a great blog, like a lot of interesting topics that we, we could all benefit from. So I would also check out that uh, resource. But again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time and expertise. And thank you for all the work that you're doing in the women's health field. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you're interested in working one-on-one -on -one with me or applying for the March Rewire Your Gut group coaching program, you can go to nutritionrewired.com where you can also shop all of my other resources to support your gut. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.